The following is an encore presentation of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Vicki returns to broadcast live in studio starting in November. Enjoy today's program. Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives, sharing their expertise and life stories, making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host... Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, today we're sharing the stories of two amazing women who've overcome childhood trauma and gone on to help others through their work. Coming up in the second half of the show, award-winning author Laurie Hulse Anderson. Her novel Speak became a noted work in bringing sexual abuse into the open. It opened a dialogue 20 years ago that we know is still going on today. And her new memoir is inspired by how little has changed in the past 20 years. It's her true story, her personal story of a survivor who refused to be silent. All right, coming up first, when she was just 15 years old, Meredith May's world got turned upside down along with her brother when overnight they found themselves abandoned by both parents and living with their grandparents. Her new book is called The Honeybuzz, a memoir of lost courage and a girl saved by bees. I just loved this story, I have to tell you. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about Meredith. She spent 16 years at the San Francisco Chronicle, where her narrative reporting won the Penn USA Literary Award for Journalism and was shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. She's the co-author of I Who Did Not Die. She lives in San Francisco, where she's a fifth-generation beekeeper. And we're going to learn much more about that and how it first started for her. And uh, her book, A Memoir of Lost Courage and a Girl Saved by Bees. Meredith May, welcome. Vicki, thank you so much. Very pleased to have you here. Um, uh, In in some ways, such a sweet story, such a sad story, but it is ultimately a story of of courage and, and healing, right? Yes. I mean, it, it, and I was saved in one of the most magnificent, beautiful, unusual ways, and that was by uh, my step grandfather, and then also by nature. His his honeybees right. showed me what was missing: the benevolence and the love and the generosity that uh, my parents couldn't teach me. And so let's go back to those first five years. Uh, you know, from what you remember and what life was like and how come you end up living with your your grandmother, your step-grandfather and grandmother? Sure. Um, 
we lived in Newport, Rhode Island, because my father was um, stationed there with the Navy. And it, I was about five. My brother was uh, two. I remember, I remember the sound of my mother's voice, very shrill. I remember um, she was very volatile. Um, dishware flew often in our house. And I remember uh, curtains. Uh, being pulled down from the curtain rods, and it was tense. Um, you know, I, I remember watching a lot and, and keeping my back to the wall, and um, uh, I remember one impressive fight, and we had a pepper grinder, one of those big wooden ones. It's like a foot tall, and it flew from one end of the table to the other, and um, not long after that, my mother put me and my younger brother on a plane and then when the plane landed we were in California and we were moving into her childhood bedroom in my grandparents house so the three of us shared a bedroom I actually shared the bed with my mom my brother had a cot in one corner and that was our arrangement for the next decade and um, my mother fell into a downward spiral that she never came out of and my father was never mentioned again. Mm. Huge shock for kids because, you know, we hear all the time how stability is so important, especially in those younger years. So, um, but you adapted as best you could, it seems. And thank goodness for your step-grandfather <laughs> in many, many ways, right? Exactly. I mean, we gravitated toward him because my grandmother's first job became caring for my mother. And so we would just hop in my grandpa's work truck in the morning and work with um, the bee yards of Big Sur. Did you feel at that age, did you feel a sense of abandonment? Because even though your mother was there, your father abandoned you physically, you say your mother abandoned you emotionally. Did you feel that sense of loss at that age? Um, it was confusing. I didn't feel like I had the right to say something had been taken from me. I just remember not understanding if we were visiting or if we were moving in and being really confused about um, my father because my grandmother and my mother would talk openly about how awful he was. And I didn't know if I should believe them. And I, I can remember being like a little scared of my father because um, in his absence, these stories were making him grow into a monster in my mind. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I, I thought it must be true because the adults are saying this. So I just remember being confused. And it wasn't until I was, you know, maybe in middle school, starting to go to high school, and I had enough time to compare my family with my friends' families and realize something was super off. And it say, you say you ultimately became a hider because of it. You, you figured that if you hid, no more bad luck was going to come your way. Yeah, I, I would hide in all sorts of weird places. Um, I would climb the eucalyptus tree in the front yard, and it was taller than our house. And I liked to go in there when it was blooming, and bees were just covering it. And the safest place for me was hidden in the middle of a big cloud of 
these. <laughs> and I would... Something most people would avoid. <laughs> right? right? Yeah. I think I felt invisible and I, and I had time to... Um, well, I think with the bees, I would uh, just watch them and I'd sort of forget myself. And that w- was soothing to me. And I would also go in the bedroom closet with a book and I would shut the door and read, but I would uh, not bring a flashlight. I'd bring a candle mm. and light it. Mm. <laughs> it's also not very safe. Right, right. Um, but it was yeah, your, your I, little sanctuary. It was your way of creating a, a safe sanctuary for yourself then. Yeah, exactly. So let's, let's talk about your grandfather, E. Franklin Peace. You dedicate the book to him. Um, sounds an awesome man. Just one of those people that my, you know, I would call grounded to the earth. And um, you seem to have learned so much from him. But he was a beekeeper, but he didn't just raise bees for honey. He was a a bee catcher. And you went with him to round up the bees. And you begin the book with a beautiful story of when you were just 10 years old. You were about to dive into your breakfast, smothering your food with homemade honey. And um, your grandfather called you out to join him, you got called out to a tennis ranch to round up a loose swarm of bees, and you went along with him. And you got attacked, but you say you didn't scream because you understood why you were being attacked. So talk to us about that experience and, and what your recognition of that understanding was at that point. Yeah, um, every spring and, and summer, our phone would ring off the hook, and that's... Um, Swarm season, that's when bees replicate in nature and they divide in two. And that's when you see a swarm in the air. So we would get a lot of calls to come get them out of people's yards and trees and um, from walls in their houses. And it was always terribly exciting because we'd have to drive really fast because the bees don't stay in one place very long. And we (laughs) wanted to catch them and bring them home. and at one time, uh, the bees had settled into a tree. When you see a cluster of honeybees like that, the queen is always somewhere in the middle, and they're protecting her. And so when bees don't like loud noises or sudden movement um, or bad smells, you should always brush your teeth when you beekeep. Um, but Interesting. someone started up a, a weed whacker, and it distressed the bees, and they flew into the air and... Um, I was standing a, a few feet away, and I had very long hair, I remember, down to my fanny, and uh, they got tangled up and, and were swimming in there. I could feel them, and they were starting to get distressed, and they uh, started to sting me, and I just fell to my knees and was trying to get them out, and Grandpa saw and ran over and, and helped me pull them out. But um, he instructed me to sit in the truck, and, and honk the horn if uh, my throat started to close up. And then he went back to getting the bees. And uh, when I survived, he he said, oh, you know, you, I'm so proud of you. You did scream. And guess what? You can be a beekeeper. You're not allergic. I love and, it. <laughs> yeah. I just felt like, wow, I have the same superpower as Grandpa now. I, I, I can do it, too. So I want to just read this, uh, share this passage with our listeners um, because I, I, I love the end of it. You say, when the queen dies, workers run frantically through the hive looking for her. The colony dwindles and the bees become dispirited and depressed. 
sluggishly wandering the hive instead of collecting nectar, killing time before it kills them. And I thought, boy, how many people do I know like that? Because this whole book is really paralleling the story of humans along with the story of bees. Yeah, uh, I was trying to do something very different uh, with bees. Uh, So much has been written about them. And when you go into a store, the bee books are in two places. They are in the science or how-to section, or they're in like magical realism, where these secret life of bees type lovely, lovely stories. But I wanted to go down a middle road between the two and, and tell you only things a beekeeper knows or sees that is a blend of both of those. And to me, bees are a perfect benevolent society, and they have not changed much in 50 million years, and they must be doing something right. I mean, even though they're in trouble now, that's not their fault. That's our fault. Right. But they have figured out the perfect way to live as a social group. Uh, bees are the opposite, direct opposite of dysfunctional family. You know, they famously put chaos into order. And so even though I was too young to articulate all this as a girl, I, I was feeling better simply by watching them and how orderly they are and how kind they are. Mm. And I was picking up ways to uh, become a better person by watching them. Well, we need to take a quick break, but I'm gonna, I want to leave us at this point with a, a quote you start the book with from William Shakespeare's Henry V. Uh, it says, So work the honeybees, creatures that by a rule in nature teach the art of order to a peopled kingdom. We're talking today with Meredith May. Her new mer- memoir is called The Honeybus, a memoir of loss, courage, and a girl saved by bees. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. We'll be right back. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Sensory sensitivity, repetitious behavior, lack of eye contact. You can see signs of autism in children as young as 18 months. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Conversations live with Vicki St. Clair. Live well and live strong. Reach her great audience and advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Talk radio for the heart and soul. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. We are talking with award-winning journalist Meredith May. Uh, she's the author of The Honey Bus, a memoir of lost courage and a girl saved by bees. And it, this really is a beautiful story. And as we were talking about in the break, it is about bees. Um, but told from a child's perspective uh, for much of the story. And I, I just love it. Um, and I learned here, I love learning facts like this, but uh, that bees emit the scent of bananas when calling for backup. 
So that's how you know if you're in trouble, right? <laughs> if you smell bananas exactly. when you're around about a swarm of bees. That means they've, you've hit the limit of their patience. Um, <laughs> so typically, if, if one of them stings, uh, then, then you'll smell banana because they are calling for backup. And that means more are going to sting you. Um, so you better close everything back up and mm. step away. So your healing began with your grandfather and the stories he told you and, and being immersed in this world of bees and seeing how, how they lived in uh, such an orderly fashion as a family unit and worked together. Um, you, you say your grandfather talked to you in met- metaphors. He sounds like a great storyteller, which I loved because both of my grandfathers were great storytellers. Um, and one of the things he told you was that Bees use dance to map their new address. When you see them dancing, they're mapping their new address. Tell us about that. Mm. Yeah, we would talk a lot about the different jobs that bees have in a hive. And my favorite job was the scout bee because that's the one that goes out and looks for, well, two things, flowers or a new place to live and comes back to the hive and dances let the other bees know where these things are. Um, And in the case of finding a new house, that's when they become too crowded where they currently live, or there's something wrong, like it's too damp or drafty. So the scouts will go out, find better places, come back, dance to advertise the address. The other bees take the info, go check it out, come back, and then they dance with the scout who's home they prefer. So oh, over interesting. Yeah? Yeah, I say that's over, really interesting. It is amazing because what happens is over a matter of hours or days, I'm not sure, but eventually one scout has the biggest dance crew, and that's the one who wins. So they democratically decide by dancing where they're going to go, and then they relocate. Um, so I would, I love this stuff, and um, Grandpa would talk to me about scout bees, and it was only until I got to be close to his age, uh, about 50, when I realized what he had been trying to tell me. And what he was telling me is that maybe my current home wasn't the best, but there are better homes out there if I take the initiative to go get them, go look for them. Mm. He actually, you write in the book that he... He told you not to worry so much about your mother, that you were smart like a scout bee, and that one, mm-hmm. day, you'd, that one day you'd find your own way in life. Um, so do you have a favorite memory? I'm sure, you know, he sounds like a wonderful man and, and a wonderful experience that you had with him. Do you have a favorite memory, a favorite story? Oh, gosh, there are so many. Um, yeah, well, the one that just popped in my mind is um, we would drive down Highway 1 to get to his beehive, and he had a contractor's rack on the back of his truck, and he used to let me stand up in the back and hold on to the contractor's rack, and he would drive really fast around those curves. Um, and it was, I just remember, it was like a roller coaster with the wind <laughs> in my hair. And, you know, it's the 70s. There's not only are there no seatbelts, there's like no rule. Right. And, um, yeah. I mean, he just, he knew what kids liked. He was very 
childlike himself. Um, he didn't give a wit about money. And um, I remember asking him once how much he made selling honey, and I almost got in trouble for asking such a stupid question. <laughs> you know, he just, uh, he, he was, um, you know, if, you know, the Buddhists believe you keep coming back uh, as a more evolved being each time if you live a good life, right? And, that, and I believe he reached the top. And um, there are so, very, very few people like that in the world, but he was completely 100% genuine and happy all the time. And I just hit the grandpa lottery. Mm, sounds like it. Well, so what is the... Let's tell listeners about the honeybows because... It's called the book is called the Honey Buzz, and your grandfather actually raised the bees in a buzz, an old buzz converted. It was a military buzz, right? Um, yeah, it was a World War II Army bus that he got off a friend in Big Sur who got it at auction at the Fort Ord military base. And um, he didn't keep bees in it. What he did is he gutted it and tore out the seeds and built his honey um, production factory. Oh, that's right. The spinner and everything is in there. Yeah. And he built it out of old spare junk because he was also like a a plumber. So there's spare junk all over the house. And uh, I mean, the yard. Well, the house too, now that I think about it. But (laughs) um, yeah, it was like this steampunk before steampunk was cool, kind of Willy Wonka factory made out of plumbing pipes and um, powered by an engine he ripped out of a lawnmower. And, yeah, he used propane and steam, a steam kettle to heat a knife to un, um, to slice open the wax honeycomb. It was just, it was a thing of beauty. I'm glad I got a few photos of it before um, he passed and it, went, it was torn down. But mm-hmm. uh, it was like our confessional. We would work in there in the summertime, shut the doors, and no one was listening, and we could just talk. Mm-hmm. What what a gift. What a gift, really. Um, I want to get this out there because, you know, we're running towards the end of the segment here. It goes so quickly. Um, but, you know, we've heard so much about bees and wasps and, and why we're losing bees and why they're important to our environment. And, you know, some people say big deal. It's just evolution. What, what do you have to say about that? What do you want people to know? Um. Maybe evolution is a factor, but there are so many other reasons why we are humans are causing this. And um, the the main ones are um, pesticides on our main agricultural crops, and then we truck the bees in and put them in those crops, and then force them to feed on these, um, you know, rows and rows and rows and rows of uh, trees. You know that, and they bring the chemical back into the architecture of their home and it's like living in a home with lead-based paint it might not kill you right away but it's going to get you eventually or your children and it disrupts the bees ability to navigate and they also we're um, taking away their forage and their wildflowers and um you know, it's, it's habitat loss, and it's also uh, global warming because the flowers are drying up and not producing as much nectar. So what I say to people is uh, the easiest, best thing you can do is become like a gorilla wildflower planter 
mm. and get those little seed balls of native uh, wildflowers and put them everywhere, like alongside roads, on rooftops, sneak them into um, shopping centers and, the, you know, put them everywhere. And that is amazing how much it helps to bring back a diverse native right. uh, abundant diet. Right. I have a question about the nesting of bees when they're naturally nesting by themselves. I, I know that eventually they, they get too big and they go looking for new housing, but I had a wasp nest outside my house once and was towards the end of the season, and I did some research, and it said if you wait until the end of the season, they'll just fly out and they will never come back to the same spot. So that's what I did. I just let them ride it out and fly away. Do bees do the same kind of thing, or do they hold on to a home once they found it. Oh, honeybees are are um, nesters. They they stay. They you know there are some if they really like a spot, they will be there for generations. Mm. Um, that's one great thing about bees is they regenerate so quickly. Um, no wasps, I don't know as much about, and I didn't know that that they move out of those hanging paper things. I guess. Yeah, they a- they actually built it um, on the ground in a in a um, one of those fern bushes, a big, big, big fern bush. Um, but yeah, sure enough, September, October came, they flew away, they never came back. Uh, so I didn't oh, have to, wow. I, I didn't have to do anything. Um, so you, at some point, you reconnected with your mom. You you had she's gone now as a, your grandfather, but you you had still have some ambivalence around those feelings. Have you found any reconciliation during the writing of the book? Yeah, I got a lot more compassion for her. Um, she, I was able to get her to talk to me about her childhood, and her biological dad was very uh, physically and emotionally violent with her. And it, it helped me not be so hard on her. Um, you know, the first draft of this book, I didn't even explain that. I hadn't even asked. Uh, I think the writing of the book, was a good thing for both of us. Um, but, you know, it doesn't explain why she never tried uh, mm-hmm. after the divorce to have a relationship with me or my brother. And I think I say somewhere in there, they're like, what's the statute of limitations on sadness? You know, I, I understand. Um, but at some point, you, you come back around, and she did this. Well, it's a beautiful story. I thank you for being with us today and sharing this. The book is called The Honey Buzz, a memoir of loss, courage, and a girl saved by bees. A final, very quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with, Meredith. Um, I would say that you know this, this is a story about resilience and alternative parenting and that anyone can raise you in this life. Um, you know, even a tiny little insect. Lovely. And listeners can find out more about Meredith May at MeredithMay.net. Meredith, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for your careful read. I loved it. And uh, the book again, The Honey Buzz. And um, we will be taking a very quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Laurie Hulse Anderson with Shout. Please stay with us. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. 
You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Let's see if I... I guess that... (sighs) This just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Looking for unconditional love, an exercise buddy, or a great listener? Pause has the dog or cat of your dreams, just waiting to meet you. We've made thousands of perfect matches since 1967, because everyone needs a warm, safe place to call home. Find out more today at pause.org or call 425-787-2500. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is Laurie Hulse Anderson. She's a New York Times bestselling author uh, whose writing spans young readers, teens, and new adults. And combined, uh, she's sold more than 8 million copies of her books. She's been nominated three times for the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award, and two of her books, Speak and Chains, were National Book Award finalists. Uh, she's joining us today to talk about her new work. Um, she's been lauded for many, many things throughout her career, and I'm sure she's going to be uh, lauded for this too. Her new book is called Shout. It's the true story of a survivor who refused to be silenced. Laurie Hulse Anderson, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, Very pleased to have you here. And I want to, first of all, because it was such a seminal work, um, you know, people say it's iconic. People use terms like, um, uh, you know, an important piece of literature. It's one of the most frequently uh, books that 
shows up in the hundred banned top to banned books list. And that's Speak. That was your first, your novel um, that kind of led to this in a way. It was a novel about sexual abuse. So tell us a little bit about why you wrote that novel and why you think it had, why you think it spoke to people. This was 20 years ago, 1999. Well, when I was uh, 13 years old, a few weeks before ninth grade started, I was raped. Uh, and I didn't tell anybody for a lot of reasons um, that made sense at the time. I didn't tell anybody for 23 years. Uh, I buried it uh, pretty deeply uh, and just tried to get on with my life. But I was dogged by depression and PTSD. So after 23 years, I finally went and found a good therapist and got the help that I needed. And it was out of uh, that therapy that I wrote Speak. Now, Speak is not what happened to me. The circumstances are quite different. The circumstances of the young girl's reaction uh, are very, very different from mine. But it was me fictionalizing a little bit of my emotional truth, which was that struggle to speak up when something terrible has happened and you don't know who you could talk to. Looking back, I think I wrote the book for myself more than anyone because I never thought it was going to be published. <laughs> Everything that's happened in the last 20 years has been a delightful surprise. Right. Most of it. And some of the things that we'll, we'll talk about later in the show, too, but some of those things, just to give a highlight there, and you spent the last 20 years really becoming an activist uh, for rape culture, for raising awareness, speaking not just to girls, but to young boys. Absolutely. Uh, it's one of the things that startles me 20 years on is that I'm still getting the same questions from boys. I, I, I travel the country and speak at high schools, colleges, and sometimes middle schools. And 20 years later, even though we've made some strides, teenage boys are still baffled because nobody has ever explained to them how uh, being a victim of sexual violence can affect another person. You know, in their minds, it doesn't, the act of sex doesn't take very long, um, whether that's you know, genital sex or oral genital contact. And they are flabbergasted when they find out that 20 years after an attack, about half of victims are still experiencing uh, PTSD. And I'm just, I'm tired of getting that question. I think we are failing all of our children. Um, and I'm really working hard these days to get people to recognize the need for us to teach our kids comprehensive, consent-based sexuality. Right, right. Um, you say that... Some want a private conversation with you. Others, others will boldly talk in front of their classmates. But um, it surprised me when I was reading through the material that came with your book. It did surprise me that, that boys were surprised by what you just said, that girls 20 years later can still have PTSD from, from a rape. Well, uh, it's important to remember that so many of our young men do not get information about healthy sex. Instead, they, they watch a lot of porn. Um, uh, American boys are beginning to watch porn sometimes at 10, 11 years old. And that has lots of scenes of non-consensual sex in them. In the absence of an adult, uh, responsible adult, explaining what healthy sexuality looks like, these are the assumptions that the boys carry with them as they enter their teens. And an interesting um, observation you say when you, when you talk to, I mean, you talk to all kinds of demographics all over the country uh, about your first book, Speak. Um, and you say that 
the teenage boys that you've told you you talked to, many of them say that they didn't believe that the victim was raped in in your and it was a novel, but they didn't believe that she was raped. In the novel, they said she drank beer, she danced with her attacker, and therefore she wanted sex. And that's the that's still the same conversation we're having today. <laughs> We've been having it for a long time, haven't yeah. we? I'm sure they had it, you know, in the 1800s to some extent, and be, and before then. So let's talk, let's talk about shout because you say it was your rage that brought you to this. It was part inspiration um, from readers of the first book. It's part your rage at why can't we just talk about these things that led to the book Shout. It was, for me, October of 2017. That was a very powerful time uh, in the movement to um, call out uh, perpetrators of sexual violence and support their victims. Uh, The Me Too movement itself was started by the activist Tarana Burke back in 2006, and she's still very, very much at the forefront of that work. She came up with a hashtag. But in the fall of 2017, there were a number of highly visible women in Hollywood called out Harvey Weinstein and other abusers. And that led, um, I think, to more conversations than we've ever seen publicly and privately. It also led to the backlash because as soon as you start talking about this, people who don't understand the impact on victims and will trot out all the old rape myths that we had no don't don't hold any water. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, she asked for it and it wasn't really rape. And uh, it was listening to that backlash that just made me incandescently angry. I've, I've listened to tens of thousands of victims talk to me over the years. I've held them as they've cried. Um, and so to hear people repeating the old tropes um, made me realize it was time to not only speak, but to start shouting. Mm. You say when you were raped at the age of 13 that you lost your voice and it took you a long time to find that again. How, how did that start? I, I know you went to therapy, but what was there a, a specific turning point where you were able to start turning things around for yourself? Well, it, you know, when you, when you enter therapy, at least in my experience, it takes a little while to develop trust with the therapist that you're working with. So it, it was months of me talking about things kind of circling around this this old wound of mine. And when I finally trusted her enough to tell her, and she was the first person I ever told, I cried a river. It was like something opened up inside of me that had been waiting for a long time. And that was the beginning of of me becoming a much healthier person. Mm. The good news is that you write that in all of your talks and and talking with so many boys, um, that, you know, some of them are angry and they want to help their friend who's been raped, and they don't know how to. Um, and the, the good news is that they want to know the rules. They want to be the good guy, the stand-up, and, and, and be honorable about things. Um, and you, you say their intentions might be good, but their ignorance is dangerous. So how do we go from where we are now at, sc- at the school level? Because that's where it has to begin. Well, I think it actually, I have a slightly different take on it. I think that within adult conversations with each other, whether that's the people that we work with, the people that we play soccer with, um, uh, you know, members of the PTO, uh, the the parents who take their kids to the bus and stand and chat at the bus stop after the bus rolls away, 
we need to start having these conversations with each other because very few adults uh, in the U.S. had parents who could talk to them about healthy sexuality. We just we we we're, we're, we're so good at putting sex on screens, and we're so bad at having mature, rational conversations about it. And it's such an important part of the lives of most people. Mm. So starting those conversations with adults is a great place. And also recognizing that we have a responsibility to teach our kids about all kinds of consent. I have a a, a three-year-old grandson who's learning about consent, who's learning that you don't touch another person without their permission, and nobody gets to touch you without your permission. So we can start building this foundation of consent-based healthy sexuality with just these, these little models of, of, of permission from the time the kids are young. Mm. Um, and then within adult communities, starting to have conversations about these things. I've, I've heard from a number of teachers and other adults who are using Shout as their book club book um, to, to start facilitating the conversation. Um, there's a, an organization I work with called RAIN. It's the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. Um, it's the number one provider of support to victims across the country. In 25 years, they've helped over 3 million victims. Wow. It's wow. RAIN.org. I'm on their National Leadership Council, and they have wonderful information on their website, not only for survivors, um, the people who love them, but also how do we start talking about consent? How can we shift from the old myth um, that it had to be a violent act, it had to be a stranger, you had to fight back, or if you didn't, it wasn't rape, to what we now understand um, are these consent-based rules, which is you have to have, if you're going to have any kind of sexual interaction with another person, you each have to exchange informed, sober, ongoing, and enthusiastic consent. And the people can change their minds if they want to. Right, right. Well, the book is described as a memoir in poetry by one of the most crucial activists for sexual assault survivors writing today. It is called Shout. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Laurie to um, read from there one of my favorite uh, poems. She's Laurie Hulse Anderson, and the book is called Shout. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Please stay with us. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to new pro supplements, we cover the world of animals. This week, September 22nd, it's Behavior Training and Healing Sunday with me. As an animal behavior therapist and trainer, I can help you understand your animal friends and resolve any problems you've got going on with them. We'll have open phone lines throughout the show, so plan to give me a call with your questions or about any animal-related topic on your mind. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. 
Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair airs live every Monday at noon. And now you can also catch the show during drive time at 6 a.m. every Friday. Hear from New York Times bestselling authors, innovative business leaders, cutting-edge health and wellness professionals, award-winning journalists, filmmakers, explorers, and adventurers. Tune in to Conversations Live with Vicki Sinclair, Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Multicultural, multidimensional even. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You are listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Um, my guest in this segment is Laurie Hulse Anderson. She's an award-winning author. Uh, we're talking about her new book, Shout, the true story of a survivor who refused to be silenced. And uh, it's been described as a captivating, powerful read about clawing your way out of trauma fervent and deafening. Uh, it's been described as powerful, alternately raw and lyrical, and an important book for the Me Too movement. And we're going to kick off this segment. I asked Laurie if she'd read um, a segment from her book. And one of my favorite pieces, actually, is the prelude. It's called Mike Test. Uh, would you go ahead and read that for us, Laurie? I would love to. Thank you very much. Mike Test. This book would salt, honey and strawberries, sunscreen, libraries, failures and sweat, green nights in the mountains, cold dawns by the sea. This book reeks of my fear, of depression's black dogs howling and the ancient shames riding my back, their claws buried deep. This book is yesterday's mud dried on the dance floor, the step patterns cautiously submitted for your curious investigation of what I feel like on the inside. I love that piece. Um, and so did it come to you organically? Did you have to work at this? At what point in the book did you write this? Uh, this was fairly early on, I think, when I realized the first poems that came to me when I was angry that day uh, in New York City uh, were some of the rage poems, some of the poems in which I share um, some of the facts that I understand and, and, and a little bit of the pain that I've heard over the years. And I was just so angry at this system that, uh, that treats people who have been victims of a crime so poorly. And then I realized that I wanted to have a bit of memoir in there also to show my journey as a, you know, from victim into being a survivor and then an advocate. And that's when I realized this has to be what, what is this book finally about? This book is my story. Um, but I think there's a lot of commonalities in those of us who have been victims of sexual violence, abuse, or molestation. And so I was hoping that by shining a light on my story, um, people will see what we have in common. And right. what we have in common is, is the need to be heard and a safe, brave space where we can speak up. You say that you see your responsibility as helping people move away from the Me Too movement to us too. And um, you want readers to basically feel less alone and know that we walk together. So talk to us about that, if you would. I've lost track of how many uh, teens have come up to me and told me that when they read Speak, that was the first time they realized that what happened to them has happened to other people. I've met kids who have felt so isolated uh, in their confusion 
and the trauma and uh, all the other bad things that can happen after a sexual assault, especially in this age where people are taking cell phone videos and, you know, sharing pictures of naked bodies without, you know, any kind of permission or, or understanding of the devastation that can wreak. And so hearing from a 15-year-old a that they thought they were the only one this had ever happened to, and hearing from 50-year-olds who have still, you know, a lot of pain over what happened to them when they were younger, I reckon if we could identify each other at a glance, I think the world would be stunned by how many women, men, and people who uh, identify outside the gender binary have been through this. Mm. I I can't, uh, you know, it's something that shocked me when the Me Too movement came out and we were, I was with a group of friends and every single person in that group said they could raise their hand. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's far more prevalent than we've been told, I think. Um, studies show that 94% of women who are raped experience PTSD symptoms. Nearly one third of victims still have those symptoms nine months after the rape. And 13% of women who are raped attempt suicide. And it's not just rape. I mean, it's any kind of sexual abuse um, can have the same impact, really, can't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just as if uh, the way that we accept that soldiers returning from war come back with different experiences, uh, some of it might have to do with the way that their childhoods were, um, their brain chemistry, uh, the incidents of their own violence, and, and you know how, how are they recovering from what happened to them. And some of those soldiers can transition to civilian life without any trouble. Others develop profound PTSD, and there's a spectrum of reactions, which, which everybody accepts, and hopefully we want to be supporting all of those veterans and their families. The same needs to be said for people who have survived sexual violence. Uh, there's a different, there's a range of incidents, a spectrum of insults um, and traumas, and then there's a range of response to those. Um, and I, I really think it's important for us to recognize that victims get to be the person who decides for themselves when and if to speak up. Um, we can't all of a sudden, you know, start holding people and, and re-traumatize them. I say, you have to tell. But if we can create a world where we're all having common understanding of what is sexual violence, what does it look like, um, and how should we be treating people, A, who are hurt by it, and then B, who perpetrate it, um, you know, we kind of have two responsibilities right now. One is to support those who've been through it, and then to figure out how we can prevent another generation of victims. Right. Such an important point you just raised. I just want to go back on that, Laurie, about, you know, it's bad enough that people have been raped, sexually abused, had sexual violence. Uh, but then we do blame them for not speaking up. And I, you know, raise my hands here. I'm guilty of that myself. And I, I think it's because I was raised in a house where I was told to speak up. We were told to speak up. We were told to stand up for ourselves. And um, so I never quite understood why people didn't speak up, but I'm listening and I'm learning along with everybody else. <laughs> and I, I just I thank you for raising that point because it is, you know, we we tend to blame them for not speaking up earlier 
And um, there, and as that, you said, and that's after we've blamed them for wearing the wrong skirt, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't do that. But <laughs> <laughs> if, if they say no, they say no, buddy. You better right. back off. Right. Um, so exactly. we're at the end of our segment. But what what is it we haven't talked about that you want to get out here and now? And I know you want to uh, send people to rain.org, rain Please. with a double N, rain.org. What else do you want them to know? Um, I want, uh, particularly um, as a white woman, as a white feminist, for um, everybody to recognize that our sisters of color and our brothers of color face much higher incidences of sexual violence than white people do, and that women who live um, in Native American nations face the highest amount of sexual violence than any ethnic group. We always have to be talking about intersectionality when we're talking about sexual violence. It doesn't just happen to straight people. It doesn't just happen to cis heterosexual people. As a matter of fact, on college campuses, the group that is at most risk for sexual violence are kids who identify as transgender. Um, and and to, we must always make space to include all of these folks, both in our heart, in terms of our support, um, but also recognize, if, if you look like me, kind of your average middle-class white lady, victims don't always look like me. Mm. Uh, and we have to make space for those conversations. Yeah, excellent. Uh, Laurie Hulse anderson you're doing such great work. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your insights. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, the book, again, is called Shout, the True Story of a Survivor Who Refused to be Silenced. You can find out more about Laurie and her work at madwomaninthaforest.com, madwomaninthaforest.com. And again, the organization that she talked about during our conversation is rain.org. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, I want to thank Requiem Publishing, who uh, sponsored part of today's show for us. And uh, we will be back next week, um, same time, same place. <laughs> you can find me at conversationslive.net and on Twitter at Vicky St. Clair. Thanks so much for being with us. And again, go visit rain.org. Thanks. See you next week. Live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.